Hello, discoverers, finders, meaning detectors, and meaning makers. I am Brooke Warner, here each week, mic to mic, with my co-host Grant Faulkner. And Grant, today's guest has done something with her most recent memoir, Lost and Found, that I'm constantly trying to teach my students, which is to mine everyday experiences for universal truths. And then on top of that, to find or even make meaning in the experiences that you share on the page. So that's what we're focusing today's show on. Uh, Because in my teaching, this is a concept that uh, with Linda Joy Myers and our teaching on memoir, we call the little T takeaway uh, and is to me the difference between a good memoir and an extraordinary memoir in the sense that it's this takeaway that really is uh, what stays with your readers long after they've read it. So, Brooke, I've got some assumptions what a little T takeaway is <laughs> and how that's different than like what I'm assuming is a big T takeaway. But I'm curious if you could tell me exactly what you mean by that. The little T takeaway is distinguished from the big T takeaway and that the big T takeaway is what the industry is looking for, right? That's the question that every author should be able to answer. What is the takeaway of your book? It's big picture. What are readers going to get from it? Why does it matter? But it's different from little T takeaway. And again, we're just naming that to give it a name. (laughs) Uh, And it is something different because it's actually a way of writing on the page that manages to make the work not solely about you, the writer. And I'm excited to talk on this subject with Catherine, because I think about it all the time. Uh, and instead, this form of writing is consciously writing outward, like for the reader in a way that could be described, I guess, as philosophical writing or musing. So I'm just going to share an example uh, from Catherine's book here to see if people can hear what I'm talking about with regard to this outward orientation in an excerpt from Catherine's book. So she writes, finding always takes one of two forms. The first is recovery. We can find something we previously lost. The second is discovery. We can find something we've never seen before. Recovery essentially reverses the impact of the loss. It is a return to the status quo, a restoration of order to our world. Discovery, by contrast, changes our world. Instead of giving something back to us, it gives us something new. And so this is really an insight of which Catherine's book, Lost and Bound, is full of. uh, And they're profound in that they are true. And also these kinds of insights in writing, specifically in memoir, spark something that an old professor of mine called the shock of recognition. And so that's like, to me, when you read something and you think, yes, me too, right? It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the case that you didn't know that thing before, uh, but rather that like the way it's articulated by the writer shocks you a bit. It sparks a shock, right? And so that's what I think of when I think about takeaway, like that it sparks delight, it sparks self-understanding, and it could spark a feeling of being seen. And so the New York Times wrote in its review about Catherine's book, Lost and Found is as much a philosophical reckoning with the experiences of losing and finding as it is a record of Schultz's personal grief and love stories. And also, this actually is important as well. I'm going to read on one more sentence. It is that philosophical turning over of loss and discovery that makes this memoir extraordinary, for it unlocks existential meaning out of the utterly mundane facts of human life. So that explains what I'm trying to teach to my students pretty beautifully 
you know, writers of memoir really ought to be efforting to unlock existential meaning out of the utterly mundane facts of life. Um, and if this were just a story of Catherine's loss of her father and falling in love with her partner, I'm sure it would be a good memoir. But what makes it actually stunning and extraordinary is how she writes about the nature of losing and finding. And it's on nearly every single page of the book. And it really did make my heart soar. It's, it's truly profound. Hmm, that's interesting, Brooke. And I've been thinking of a version of this for several years, actually. And I'm 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 very interested in the the smaller moments of our lives and the and the deep meanings that smaller moments can hold, especially through you know writing really tiny stories or a hundred word stories in particular. In my case, and I mentioned this because my premise is that writing tiny stories opens up the mundane in interesting ways. And these are the types of stories that might not find a place in big T stories because they're not so tied to the dramatic trajectory of a major life event. You know, they almost go unnoticed. And I'm thinking, for example, of Ross Gay's Book of Delights, in which he tried to notice one thing each day that delighted him. And he wrote one essay a day, or essayette, as he called them, about a delight and why it was a delight. And then that process opened up a meditation on the nature of delight through, you know, both his personal observations and also his larger reflections on them. So I'm curious if this is something you're trying to teach. What are most memoirists doing by contrast, I guess? Is, is it possible to still unlock meaning if writers aren't actually writing in this outward way that Catherine does so well? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely something I'm trying to teach all the time. And I do think you can still have a powerful story about what happened to you you know, reflection is one of the cornerstones of memoir and you can reflect without making universal meaning. Uh, and readers can and still will relate when you do this. And maybe it's the case that most people will, but, you know, reflection is generally written in the first person. So it's your experience or saying, this is why it matters to me. But what Catherine's doing and what takeaway does is to depart from that first person claiming of experience and move into the second person. Often it will be like the you or the we, and that has the effect of offering up an experience for examination in a really different way. In my opinion, it's an invitation to your reader. And so again, for the sake, cause I just think it's so important to click into like, what are we talking about here? And so just a couple of more short examples. I don't usually like to read quite so much from people's work, but her writing is really outstanding, first of all, and, and so exemplary of exactly what I'm talking about with my students. So about loss, she says, this is the essential avaricious nature of loss. It encompasses, without distinction, the trivial and the consequential, the abstract and the concrete, the merely misplaced and the permanently gone. So it's philosophical, right? I mean, you can hear her musing about the nature of loss. And then similarly, on finding, she writes... Finding is usually rewarding and sometimes exhilarating. A reunion with something old or an encounter with something new. A happy meeting between ourselves and some previously missing or mysterious bit of the cosmos. And so she's using our, we, and automatically it's just a more inviting way of writing to your reader because as the reader, you're sitting there nodding along going, yeah, I, I get that, right? And and so much of Catherine's book and many memoirs are adopting this kind of language. And I think it helps the genre generally not to seem quite so me focused. And as I was saying earlier, to be outward leaning and, and an exploration of broader truths. 
Yeah, Brooke, it's really interesting. Um, while you were reading those passages, it made me think that in some ways this is a little bit like an older style of writing that actually reminds me of Montaigne or Thoreau. And I, I say that because writing used to reach for universal truths by definition. But then with the advent of modernism and postmodernism, those universal truths have become less desired and, and less welcome in some ways and certainly less trusted. Um, and I say that because we tend to culturally privilege the personal individual perspective over universal truth to the extent that I'm actually uncomfortable using the words universal truth. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if I think of the world like that, although, you know, as you're pointing out, there is a definite place for that. Uh, broader truths do exist and they do bind us. So it's powerful that Catherine is leaning into them as a way to shape and guide her story. Yeah, it is powerful. And this book has stayed with me in a unique way um, for lots of reasons. And I know I'm not alone. You know, reading it gave me pause and made me reflect on my own losses and discoveries. And, and definitely I had those shocks of recognition that I mentioned earlier. So I just can't recommend it enough. And even if you're not an aspiring memoirist, understanding the value of this kind of writing, and it's interesting that you said there's sort of a gravitation away from it, I think we might be gravitating more toward it again, mm. uh, just because there is this need to make meaning in memoir specifically. And, and this way of writing, I think, can open up portals to make that meaning in your own life. And for, for me, this is like what the best kind of memoirs do, as I've been reiterating in today's episode. Well, I like your thought about how a type of perspective or a type of attention opens up a portal of thought. It really is a portal. And since I mentioned Ross Gay's Book of Delights earlier, one thing I thought was interesting about it was the way he noticed his delight radar or delight muscle grow just because of the way he consciously became attuned to it through his daily practice. So our minds shape our writing, but our writing shapes our minds as well and puts new intentions and patterns and practices in place. And I can't wait to learn more from Catherine right after this super short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everyone. I am so pleased to have on the show today, Catherine Schultz, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. She won a National Magazine Award and a Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for The Really Big One, an article about seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest, which is a must read unless you happen to live in the Pacific Northwest, in which case I'm not sure. <laughs> the subject of today's interview is her new book, Lost and Found, and her other other essays have uh, appeared in the Best American Science and Nature Writing, the Best American Travel Writing, and the Best American Food Writing. A native of Ohio, she lives with her family on the eastern shore of Maryland. Catherine, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I absolutely loved your book for countless reasons, and it's stayed with me over these weeks since I first read it. 
a large part because of your capacity to draw from the personal and then to make those experiences universal. And so I'd love to start out today just hearing you talk about this kind of intentionally focused, what I think of as outward writing. Um, and I don't know if you have a name for it, how you orient to that kind of writing, uh, or just how you think of its importance contrasted with, you know, the opposite of that, which is maybe just writing about regular scenes in which you're the focus. Mm. I don't have a name for it, uh, or probably very well formulated ideas for it, because I think it's it's a little bit my default mode. I mean, the anomaly in some ways for me was to be writing something that's at least in part relatively personal, quite personal, actually. You know, part of the book is very much uh, focused on these kind of two momentous moments in my life, on, on grieving my father and falling in love. But I think my reflex is always to turn toward the world. I find the world much more interesting than myself. And, and also there's a whole lot more of it than there is of me uh, before you even get into, you know, all of history and all of the cosmos. So look, I think it's not that I don't think individual lives are interesting. I think they're completely fascinating. I think they're, you know, the atomic unit of history. And it's incredible when you look at anyone's life, uh, how full of experience and content and contradiction and information it is. Uh, and, and so, of course, you can just sit and, and revel in all of those details and learn an enormous amount. Um, but, you know, some of that to me, I guess, is interesting insofar as it helps us not just understand one another, uh, which is to some extent the project of biography or memoir, but uh, but understand ourselves, you know, understand the, the kind of broad experience of, of being human and what it is we have in common. And I suppose, especially in this political moment when it often seems we have not enough in common or very little in common and when so much of the focus is on our dividedness uh, and, and the kind of incommensurability of our experiences. To me, there's something very beautiful about trying to focus on what actually uh, we might share and, and what might be universal about being human. Hmm. You know, on that note, the New York Times wrote that you take issue with the expectation that a memoir must unearth dysfunction or trauma to hold the reader's attention. And I agree with that, but I'm curious if it was the case in writing Lost and Found that you took issue with it by grappling with topics that are more everyday, and therefore you're just proving that a memoir that's not about unearthing traumas can hold readers' attention. <laughs> well, you know, it isn't that I set out to, you know, to, to disprove the notion that, that, you know, we're only gripped by trauma or unhappiness or dysfunction. I wasn't, you know, um, trying to, uh, to win an argument, so to speak. Uh -huh. But I was certainly mindful going into this book that a great many contemporary memoirs, uh, are grounded in one of two experiences. And one of them is, is the experience of trauma. Um, and the other is the experience of celebrity. And uh, to be clear, I, I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean, I'm immensely glad that we live in a time when uh, there is real transparency around trauma and, and when people feel they're able to write about it. And I believe those books are important and can be immensely comforting and useful. Uh, and everyone's always been interested in celebrity. That's hardly a new thing. So I, I take no issue with that either. Um, but, but, you know, on some level, you play the hand you're dealt. And I am uh, not famous. And I, uh, to my great good fortune, do not uh, have a, a 
significant history of trauma or dysfunction or, you know, overcoming some terribly difficult childhood. I had a terribly wonderful childhood. And, uh, but it seemed to me that happiness uh, is, is no obstacle to interestingness. And it's, it's fascinating to me that there is this kind of common notion that there is, um, I guess I, you know, that there's kind of two pieces of that for me. And one is that I don't know why we wouldn't be interested in happiness. We all want it, right? You know, it, is, it is actually the kind of life that we that we aspire to live. And so to me, to some extent, a book that is partly about this question of like, well, what does a good life look like? And, and you know, how does one help bring that about seemed to me intrinsically interesting. But it also seems to me that, you know, even if you take away every possible additional challenge to life you know if you if you um remove tragedy and trauma and violence and poverty and and all of the kinds of things that uh, that you know can make life extraordinarily difficult the sheer terms of our existence are pretty tough right, right. <laughs> the terms of our existence are you know we we we're, we're born into this world and we fall in love with various parts of it and various people in it. And then it is all taken away from us, you know, uh, either, either through our own death or, or through uh, the forces of entropy and the death of everyone we love. And I just don't know why you would need more than that to feel like there was a lot to grapple with in the human life. <laughs> Plenty of trauma. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I appreciate you talking about that because these are kind of the existential questions you circle in your book and, I wanted to ask you specifically about structure and the book is in three parts, lost, found, and then finally, and so I'm curious how you landed on this structure and if you could share when during the course of your lived experience of losing your father and then finding your current partner, C, uh, when did you realize that you wanted to write a memoir about losing and finding? Mm. Yeah, I'd be happy to answer that. And it turns out it's the same question. Um, mm. The great gift of this book was that I knew the structure from the very beginning. Um, is structure is, I think, often one of the most challenging parts of writing. And, and the longer your writing project, the more challenging that becomes. Uh, but in this particular case, uh, the book actually came into being the moment the idea for the structure came into being. Uh, so I had written an essay for The New Yorker uh, not long after my father died that um, was partly an elegy to him, but partly a, a kind of um, reckoning with this very strange category of loss, you know, with, with the question of like, well, why is it that I would put my beloved father, uh, whom I lost, into the same category as, you know, that blue trouser sock that went missing in the wash cycle. <laughs> you know, what is, is this linguistic coincidence? Is this meaningful? Like, what do we, what do we make of all of the many things that populate the category of loss? Um, so that essay, you know, in a sense that of course became the, the seed for the first section of lost and found the loss section. Uh, but a long time elapsed between the essay and the idea for the book. Um, and, you know, what happened basically was a, a couple of people asked me if I was interested in expanding it, uh, that original essay into a book. And for a long time, the answer was no, I didn't uh, just want to write about grief. Uh, and I felt that I had kind of said what I wanted to say for the time being. Um, but, you know, of course, it stuck with me because the death of one's father sticks with you. And, and, you know, I turned it over from time to time as an idea. And then eventually, more than a year later, I was uh, on a road trip with my partner in the deep south. We were on a back road in Alabama in the middle of the night. 
and we were talking about this question of like, well, would I ever expand this essay into a book? And it sort of emerged in the course of that conversation that there was this uh, kind of mirror image story to be written. And uh, that was um, not a story about loss, but a story about discovery. Uh, and I realized, oh, I could do the exact same thing. I could explore this really fascinating category of all the things we find in life, which likewise range from the very trivial, you know, coins and four leaf clovers and this kind of thing to the absolutely momentous. You know, we find God, we find meaning, uh, we, we find our loved ones, uh, find our life partners. Uh, I, I could explore that category. And in the same way that my exploration of loss was grounded in this very personal story about losing my father, this exploration of discovery could be grounded in this very personal story about finding my partner and falling in love. And that was interesting to me, but oddly still did not quite seal the deal until my partner in the course of this conversation happened to use this very everyday phrase, uh, lost and found, to kind of describe um, back or echo back to me what it was I was describing. And you know, I don't know, the mind uh, on a back road uh, at two in the morning is a very interesting thing. And when she said lost and found, truly what I what I heard most resoundingly was the and, you know, it was the connection between between those two components, between the lost and the found, which I'm sure is partly because I did have the experience of finding my partner and losing my father in quite close uh, conjunction. So I had already been thinking about the way that we are always living with more than one experience at once. You know, I would much rather have just fallen in love and, and luxuriated in that for years and you know, decades before losing my father, but that was not what life had in store for me. And so I've been thinking about like, well, this is kind of the nature of, of adult experience. Like you're always feeling more than one thing at once. You're always experiencing more than one thing at once. And in all these interesting and complicated ways, our, our love and our grief are bound together. Our joy and our sorrow are bound together. Um, our everyday happiness and our, you know, irritating frustrations are bound together. This is just the way life works. And, uh, and that was fascinating to me. And so the moment uh, she said that, and that this kind of idea of lost and found uh, popped into my head, it, it became clear to me right away, oh, okay, this is not actually a two-part book. This is a three-part book. Uh, and, and more importantly, this is a book I actually really do want to write. Well, one way we're bound together is also through language, um, and that's something I really appreciated um, in your book, uh, especially as a writer. So much of your book centers on language and semantics, and you did a lot of research and dived deep into etymology. And, and you know, I think your enthusiasm and interest, you know, carries the narrative in, in interesting ways. So I was wondering if you can share a bit about this love of language and how you think about it when you're crafting your work at the sentence level. And even just what you said about lost and found there, that kind of focus on the and was really intriguing to me. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you for noticing it. It's true that I um, I have a lot of fun at the level of language. And I, uh, you know, this book is partly about my father and I do, I do credit him considerably for that. You know, my dad spoke six languages. Uh, English was the last one that he learned, uh, but he was, uh, you guys, you guys uh, are very eloquent. And I, I, you know, here I am, I, I professionally obliged to do things with words. And yet my dad could talk all of us under the table. I mean, he just was unbelievably articulate. Mm -hmm. He had this astonishing vocabulary. He had, uh, and, and even more than that, he just had fun with words. He just thought language was exciting. Uh, and, and he conveyed that excitement to his children and shared it with us. So I, I grew up with this sense that words were fun and sentences were fun. And the truth of the matter is that is still where my heart lies as a writer. I, I really admire my colleagues who, um, you know, are in it 
for the reporting, right? They're in it to, to get the, the information and, and to get the, the crucial and, and difficult to discover facts and, and to bring things to light. Uh, and, you know, I know I have other colleagues uh, whom I also admire inordinately who are in it for the story. You know, they recognize a great yarn and they want to sit down and tell it. Um, but for me, I've, I've just always been in it for the sentence. Mm. That's uh, probably the only part of writing that I actually find easy and, and consistently pleasurable. Um, so I suppose it's not surprising that some of that gets uh, kind of refracted into the work via this sort of active engagement with language, you know, questions like, well, why does the word lost cover all of these very, very different things? Or like, what's up with this, you know, basically invisible word and that we use a zillion times a day, but never really think about, you know, where does it come from? What does it mean? What, 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 uh, what are its special capacities as it were? Um, so yeah, I think for me, it's just, um, it's, it's where all the fun of writing lies. I love that, Catherine. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about personal writing. Your book is very personal, a deep offering of your feelings about many things, of course, but primarily your feelings about two people, as you said, your father and your now wife, who you call C in the memoir. And so you've written a previous book, you're a staff writer for The New Yorker. And so you've been writing publicly for years. And memoir is so different. And I'm curious, what considerations did you have in writing this memoir about your own public life? And what considerations did C have, given that she's also a public facing writer? And, you know, just being the role as a subject of your book. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's a great question. And honestly, we should probably just, you know, put her on the program to answer for herself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, Look, first of all, I should say, uh, you're right, I, I refer to my partner as C in the book. Um, that's not meant to be coy, and it's not a secret. She is a public figure and a tremendous writer and, and well-known as such. She's Casey Sepp, a, a colleague, a fellow staff writer at The New Yorker and author of a really remarkable book, speaking of reporting and, and, and storytelling, a remarkable book uh, called Furious Hours about Harper Lee and a true crime story she tried to write in the decades after To Kill a Mockingbird. So, yes, you're absolutely right. She's completely public-facing. Uh, there, there's no mystery about who she is. Um, but, you know, in, in working on this book, um, I'm obviously not writing about either of our professional or public facing lives. I'm writing about falling in love with her, you know, sort of the most, the most uh, intimate and, and personal part of our life. And, you know, for myself, you know, if I'm completely honest, I did not think very much or very deeply before plunging into memoir land. Um, which uh, I suppose is characterological in two different ways. Arguably, I don't think very much or very deeply, as much as I should <laughs> before, before you know, taking on any such project. Um, but also, I'm just not a very private person, and so I wasn't put off by uh, or, or worried about um, the consequences of making parts of my life public, which... I'm sure it was made easier by by what we were discussing earlier, which is um, the story I'm telling is a very happy one. You know, it's about the incredibly happy family I come from. It's about the incredibly happy family I've made with my partner. It's about the happy family she comes from. So it wasn't fraught in the way that I think these memoirs that do um, deal more in the world of trauma or in the world of celebrity, which is its own kind of, uh, you know, public relations uh, uh, problem to solve. Uh, it, it, it just, it didn't have the kinds of attendant issues that, that those kinds of memoirs do. Um, that said, you know, my partner is more private than I am. And I was very mindful of that while writing this and it was enormously to her credit that she 
never for a moment uh, ceased championing this project and and um, supporting and sustaining me in it and and her only concerns about it were making it as as good as it could be and as true to the vision I had for it as possible and then the same was true for everyone in it you know my I'm mindful that you know the stories I tell are never just my stories they are my stories but but they're hers they're her families uh, they're my sisters they're my mothers and uh, and and all of those people were wonderful about just kind of stepping back and, and trusting me to write the version that I that I felt needed to be written and I guess I should just say also about it that you know I think another thing that made me think less about some of those kinds of concerns that that can attend memoir writing is that the book was so constrained and organized by the structure we were just discussing you know that the, the, the um, everything in it is there to serve this exploration of loss and this exploration of discovery and this exploration of the idea of connection and in a way that that put a set of um, constraints on it that just meant that you know there, there was a lot less of the personal than there might otherwise be enough I hope to to feel intimate and, and to give uh, readers kind of powerful stories to connect to uh, but it wasn't like it was ever going to be sort of you know Catherine Schultz like birth to the present day tell us everything <laughs> well on that note Catherine that's interesting that you said that because I am interested in that interplay of the personal versus those other that kind of constellation of stories and that you know reflection on these themes um, how they all play together. And I say that because your book's a memoir and you've referred to it as a memoir, but it's actually more than a memoir in many ways. So I'm just kind of curious how you think about your own book and if memoir feels accurate to you or if you set out to do something different or something, you know, broader just from the beginning. It's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I certainly can remember that when I was first discussing it with my editor and, and the publishing house in general, I chafed a little bit at the um, at the category of memoir and at the idea that the subtitle, like on the book jacket, would be memoir. And a lot of people, much smarter than I am, about how the publishing world works, convinced me that that was both a good idea and and also, you know, in kind of practical terms, just true. <laughs> you know, it's, the book is in fact about you know the death of my father and how I felt about it. And, and about falling in love. So, you know, there's no question that some of what's going on in it is memoir. But I do think I've always thought of it in slightly different terms than that. And, you know, maybe that's just precious and maybe that's how everyone feels about their work, but it's it's in some way, you know, doesn't fit neatly into a particular category. Um, but, you know, I am interested in, as we were discussing earlier, this kind of um, outward turn, you know, the turn back toward the rest of humanity, toward uh towards culture, towards history, towards the cosmos for that matter. And so I always knew it wasn't, um, it wasn't a memoir in, in a uh, kind of neat or straightforward sense of just recounting my life. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not a memoir. I mean, I, I read a lot of memoirs in, in getting ready to write this one. And I'm certainly not the only person who has you know, done something with the genre that, that would suggest that memoir is an incomplete accounting, you know, many, many books reach beyond themselves, you know, begin with the life or are grounded in the life and reach beyond it in interesting ways. So no, I think, um, I think both sanity and, and any dose at all of humility require me to embrace, the, <laughs> embrace the, the genre as much as anyone else has. <laughs> thank you, Catherine. I mean, really, it's a profound book and we're very grateful to have you on the show. So thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much, Catherine. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. It's really fun to talk to you folks about it. 
We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Grant, while Catherine's book is extraordinary for its deep capacity to make meaning on nearly every page, I also think it falls into something that has long been a trend in my world, and that's the hybrid memoir. I mean, we talked to her a little bit about that at the end, and she saw it as something broader, but ultimately claims memoir. You know, the industry loves a good hybrid memoir because memoirs on their own are really hard to sell. So publishers like stories that have a strong message, i.e. takeaway, little t takeaway, Mm -hmm. for the reader. Um, And because those are things that make the book about more than whatever the topic of the book might be, right? These broader truths that we're talking about. So that's today's trend, hybrid memoirs. Hmm. That's interesting because when I think of the category hybrid memoir, I think of a book like Claudia Rankin's Citizen, which is a hybrid of forms, you know, poetry and personal stories and cultural analysis and news clippings all mixing in one. But you're talking about a life story that also includes a little bit of self-help or memoir with a call to action. So I'm curious, Brooke, do you think memoirs that are able to execute on something with that kind of strong takeaway for the reader, are they inherently more commercial and sellable? Yeah, they are, I think, because so much memoir circles the same territory. And I don't mean this to be disparaging in any way, but coming of age, mother-daughter stories, abuse narratives, food and travel stories. These are wonderful books, but the memoirist who can shape their own story into something that transcends that, uh, you know, explicitly an attempt to help the reader in some way or to leave readers with a call to action or a deeper understanding about the nature of a lived experience. I do think the industry is always going to see those things as more saleable and that those kinds of books will be more attractive to agents and editors. Yeah, I think we've now driven out of the terrain of my reading where I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So do you have a few examples of books you've worked on over the years that have achieved that? Definitely when I worked at Seal Press, this was more of a focus for us than it is in my role now at She Writes. And the reason is because Seal is a traditional publisher and like all traditional publishers has a love-hate relationship with memoir. And the reason for that hate part of the equation is the aforementioned fact that memoirs are really hard to sell. They, they're hard to promote and really get traction and they're competitive. There's all these reasons why. It's a saturated market. Uh, And so to remedy this, publishers will often gravitate toward these kinds of hybrids. And so at Seal, we did a lot of books like these. I mean, home repair in which the author gave tips for how to fix things yourself. I remember we did a gardening memoir with gardening tips. Uh, We had a book about burnout in which the author gave explicit ideas for how to avoid burnout at the end of each chapter. You know, so yeah, to the extent that you can find ways to offer the reader something concrete from your experience, even recipes and food memoirs fit the bill here. Uh, These are the kinds of things that I worked on certainly and, and that the publisher will generally see more value in. 
Yeah, I have to confess as a writer, I tend to be resistant to to add what I sometimes think of these actionable extras, you know, they're kind of like <laughs> exercises or homework because I'm, I'm just not really sure if they truly add anything or if readers, you know, truly benefit from them. And when I think of things like how-tos or recipes or tips or advice, I wonder if these seem more like devices to you to make a case that the book has value beyond an author's personal story. Yeah, I mean, that is how I see it, more like devices. And it's why I'm not super keen on pushing the memoirists I work with in this direction unless it totally makes sense for their books. Uh, so the kind of hybrid that I'm a thousand times more interested in is one like Catherine's, which, mm -hmm. you know, is a hybrid insofar as what she's done is bigger than memoir, which is what makes it hybrid, in my opinion. Lost and Found is not gimmicky. And so I think some of these other measures publishers take to make the memoirs more self-helpy kind of are that they're they're just gimmicky. Yeah, definitely not exactly for me, at least. Um, gimmicky and salesy in the end, I think, when I'm I'm definitely more interested in the story itself. And we at Right Minded, we're interested in stories, not gimmicks. So we'll be back next week with a very story-minded episode. So please keep listening to us and please spread the word if you can, because we want the world to be a world full of writers. See you next week. 